This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. You know, I think a non-Muslim, before they listen to what we have to talk about, about uh, the, the subject matter, I think they need to get a few things correct. That means we need to remove some misconceptions and some distortions. Otherwise, you might be putting this Islamic, whatever we're talking about, maybe, you know, it's like, I put it this way, maybe you're, because you got the wrong bank account, maybe you work for a year and your money is going in the wrong bank account. That means what? You had the wrong information. You had the right intent, but your money was going in the wrong bank. So at the end of the year, what do you have? You got nothing. So for the non-Muslims, I think this is best for us to understand, answer a few of these questions um, so that whatever sincere concern that you have about Islam and Muslims, you're directing it in the correct way. First of all, Islam is a moral system. Let's take the word religion out of it. Because religion itself is kind of abstract. You know, if I was a Catholic today, if I were a Catholic today, I would have some serious concerns about my religion. I don't think I have to say anything further than that. But Christianity is a faith system, but why? God sent it as a moral system. So let's use the word morality. Because morality means to make something right. A scholar, he said, when asked the question, what is Islam? Uh, I'll say it in Arabic and translate it. He said, Al-Islam is Islam with Allahi bi-Tawheed. Wal-Inqiyadu lahu bi-Tawaati. Wal-Rutu shirk Wal-Kufr. Wal-Ahlihi. So, translation. Uh, this scholar, he said, Al-Islam is Islam. Submission. Islam is Islam. It means submission. To who? to Almighty God according to the rule and the specification of Tawheed, monotheism. This is what characterizes Islam from anything else, that we're submitting ourselves not to people, not to man-made systems, but first we're submitting our hearts and our minds and our emotions to Almighty God and the legislation that He has sent. And when we say God, we mean Almighty God, no other gods. And we are in obedience to God. That's what Islam calls us to be, in obedience to God. Before our mothers and fathers, before our country, before our own desires, Islam commands us to be in obedience to Almighty God. This means surrendering to God in the same way that if you were at the ATM machine and you would get ready to deposit a thousand euros into the ATM machine and somebody came behind you and they put a gun to your head and they said, stick up and give me the money. What would you do? You wouldn't have no arguments. What would you do? You would put your hands up and you would submit. We Muslims, once we understand who is God, we put our hands up and we what? We submit. Not because God threatened us, but because God has created us, okay, because God had the roadmap. The same way when you get inside your car, if you have a GPS, what do you do? You follow your own ideas or people who's in the back seat or you follow the GPS? The answer is clear. You follow the GPS because you're confident that the technology is more accurate than the desires of the people in the back seat. God gave us more than a GPS. God gave us guidance. And that's why we follow it. We don't have any apologies for having something stronger than a GPS. <coughs> the sources of Islam, it's very important that whoever wants to discuss Islam, they don't get it confused, like the guys in the street said, don't get it twisted. See, the sources of Islam is not Muslims. The sources of Islam is not government. The sources of Islam is not movements. The sources of Islam are two. The divine revelation that came to the Prophet Muhammad that has been preserved in its entirety. So the whole world can read the Quran. So I suggest that any non-Muslim that wants to discuss Islam, first go to your local library, or now that we have Sheikh Google, go to Google or Gaggle or Giggle. 
and download the Quran and read as much as you can. So that's the first reference. The next reference is that we have a human paradigm. It's not like Obama or Clinton, okay, or no, no, we have a human paradigm. That means a human being who represents that divine revelation. And so for 15 centuries, Orientalists, non-Muslim scholars, and others have been examining critically the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, for the last 15 centuries, and his example stands clear and firm and distinct. So I would suggest that all non-Muslims, whether you are lay people, meaning non-professional people, or you are professional people, study something of the Quran, study something from the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, because these are the first sources of Islam. And what does Islam call people towards? Islam calls people towards personal and social reform. Forget about how we do it, about the steps. Personal and social reform. That's what Islam calls people towards. And that's why when human beings become reformed inside themselves, and reformed means changing themselves to become better and better and better every day. After a while you have a society that does what? It reforms itself and it becomes better and better every day. And when societies become better and better, then the world becomes what? It becomes better and better. Now how does Islam compare with Christianity? You know, Islam compares with Christianity because we're, on this, we're going the same direction on two different tracks. Same direction to worship God and to follow the prophets of God and to be good human beings. That's how Islam and Christianity. But the differences that we have is what we say about God and the example that we're trying to follow. That's the difference. We don't have time to argue about those differences today, but all we can say is in all the people in the world, the ones that we are the closest to are the Christians, and we're proud to say that. How does Islam differ from other faiths? Well, we've got different faiths that have different expressions. You know, in the Hindu faith, you know, they follow and they believe in 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 different gods. We don't want to make any criticism about that, but that can certainly become quite confusing. In Islam, Almighty God orders us to recognize and to obey and to worship only one. So you can see there's a difference there. <clears throat> the other thing is that most faiths call to people towards the institution and the rituals. So then the faith becomes dominated by rituals and by the institution. In Islam, that is not the case. Islam starts out as a relationship between the human being and God. And it ends up at the end between the human being and God. But human beings collect themselves together into families, into communities, into societies, and into governments, whether they're Muslims or Christians, that also is an expression of our faith. What are some of the most appealing aspects of Islam? Well, for me, I would say to you that after traveling around the world, 75 countries, and, uh, and visiting so many cities and talking to people all over the world and uh, reading the, about the history of the world and human beings, I can say for myself that I feel um, honored to be a Muslim. It's like, it's like I'm in a, a room where the lights is kind of like way down and I'm the only one that got a light. Wouldn't you feel kind of distinct? So I'm not saying I have the light, I'm saying that the Qur'an and the life of the Prophet Muhammad has provided us with a distinction, a light of guidance. But that doesn't mean that I have any prejudice towards other human beings. One, Islam emphasizes obedience to Almighty God, that's what I said. Secondly, Islam emphasizes that through your rituals, through your observation, you know, through your practicing of this faith, you should, I should, we should become better human beings. 
And who's the one to let us know that we are a better human being? Is it, I should say I'm a better human being? My family should say we are better human beings? No, no. It's my neighbor that should say I'm a better human being. It's my neighbor, it's my colleague, it's my co-worker, it's my, my, the people inside of my society. They should recognize us to be better human beings. And if people are not attracted to become Muslims, if people are not attracted towards Islam, Muslims should look at their example and not be blaming other people. In most cases, it's we, Muslims, that are misrepresenting Islam. And most of what criticisms that I have heard, other than people like, um, what's, um, what's the name? You got a guy here, his name Gert Wilders, he got like silver hair. <laughs> Since I don't know all the kind of people in the, in the in Dutch, but I would say he's like the, the, the nemesis, you know? You got highly prejudicial people who are highly influ influential and also highly ignorant. When you got those three things, highly influential, highly prejudicial, and also ignorant about the sources, you got a lot of problems. However, most of the people in, in, uh, in the Netherlands or in Europe, they don't represent that. They're innocent people. They're good people with clean hearts, clean minds. They really want to know the truth. But you have people from the side who's giving this uh, distortions. But let's put all that to the side. And by the way, uh, I said this before when I first came to Holland. If Mr. Wilders is still talking the way he's talking. Yes. Well, I challenge Mr. Wilders whenever and whatever he likes to a 60-minute dialogue, not a debate, a dialogue that is live and streamed all over the world. And we can discuss what Islam is and what Islam is not and compare that to what he thinks it is. So I hope Mr. Wilders will get that open invitation. We're talking about a dignified discussion, not mudslinging from a distance. Now, I believe that we Muslims reform ourselves, correct ourselves, and take the resource that we have and invest that resource into the society where we are, you'll find, you know, that gradually the opinions that people have will change. How will Islam integrate and complement into the world today? Muslims need to study the world, its societies, and its institutions and what Muslims should include when they go to school and when they worship, how they're going to take those resources and give that and invest that into their society, into their neighborhoods, and therefore, eventually, into the world. That's how Islam will integrate. That's how Islam integrated in the beginning, and that's how Islam integrated will integrate at the end. I also think that Muslims living in this country, in this particular city, you need to broaden your worldview. What do I mean by that? Well, one day at the Jacob Javits Center in Manhattan, a center that holds like um, 85,000 people, they give big presentations there. And Bill Gates came there about 10 years ago to give a presentation on, the, uh, on his new products and his vision for the world and blah, blah. So, I was invited there, and, uh, and I didn't pay. I was invited. I was given a free ticket. And so, um, the first thing he said when he came out, he says, I'm very happy to see so many people here, and uh, very honored to be here. And to be honest, I just got a few words to say, and I could just leave. He said, what we need to do as human beings is to understand the world and to think outside the box. And he stepped back. Well, you know, if I had paid $150 to come and see this guy, and I flew from another country or another state to see this guy, and that's all he had to do was say, take us outside the box, I'd have probably picked up a chair and threw it at him. <laughs> that's because we didn't understand what he meant. In fact, that statement, think outside the box, is probably one of the most profound statements that anyone has made in the last century. Think 
outside the box. And that's what I tell Muslims. Think outside of yourself. Think outside of your culture. Think outside of your neighborhood. Think outside of the city where you live, the society where you live. Think about the world. Think about humanity. Think about the problems and try to think about the solutions. That's our challenge. Now, the non-Muslims who are here today, why should you even consider Islam? Well, I can't answer all of that for you because I don't know what your motivation was to come here today. But if you came here as a hater, you're really wasting your time. You're wasting your time. The example I give about haters is like, will the moon be affected or changed by wild dogs barking? It will not. I suggest, therefore, that non-Muslims who have issues with Muslims or non-Muslims, if you came here to record something and later on, from some dark place or behind a computer, you know, to further your agenda, you're really just wasting your time because the moon is full. But a non-Muslim who came here because they are interested or they just have some, they're just inquisitive or they might be motivated because they have a family member, a neighbor, a classmate and they're here for that purpose, I say that is great, that's enough of a motivation for you to consider Islam. And for those non-Muslims who have been considering Islam and reading about Islam, why should you become a Muslim? Why should you even consider to become a Muslim? For the same reason that when you graduate from the university, you should have a CV and you should vet your CV out. For the same reason. To get personal benefit and distinction. Having said that, I'd like to move straight into my uh, discussion today. And I hope that... Uh, the comments that I made was not too provocative. <clears throat> um, I'm going to change a few things in my discussion because I delivered this talk in Washington, D.C. about maybe three or four years ago. As a matter of fact, um, it was uh, in the same year that Mr. Obama, um, it was the same year that Mr. Obama was elected as the President of the United States, and just to make sure that people don't think in their minds that like, wow, that was lucky, you know, he, it was lucky, man, that was phenomenal, that's like a miracle, that could not have happened, guess what, the same people that elected him four years ago, what happened, they elected him again, so, I gave this talk in Washington, D.C., and since it was America, of course, I'm using that as a backdrop. But since I'm here in the Netherlands, I'll change a few things so it becomes relevant to the society where I am. In a world of cynicism and mutual condemnation, now I do realize that some of you sitting here, that you may not understand some of the terminology I'm using because, you know, I'm sorry, I'm speaking English. But if I had a nice, beautiful Dutch wife, in a year or two I'd be able to speak Dutch. <laughs> That's just a joke. In a world, it's not really a joke. In a world of cynicism and mutual condemnations, it is extremely difficult to convince people it's really a joke, sisters. <laughs> I don't want you, you know, you be sending some emails back and telling my wife wives what I just said. In a world of cynicism and mutual condemnations, it is extremely difficult to convince people of the basic goodness of human beings. And in a world where most everyone has been harmed, insulted, or transgressed upon, it is very rare to find people willing to forgive. In a world of bigotry, racism, and class struggle, human beings have justified why they do not have to sit and listen to whom they consider their inferiors or their opposition. And in a world of frustration, anger, and great misunderstandings, it is extremely difficult to bridge differences and to accept arbitration. This is our world. 
This is our society and your society. And this is our individual and collective dilemma, challenge. In the midst of all this darkness and this pessimism, there is a need of a great inspiration and a very powerful moral vision. But where will humanity obtain such a vision? Persons of various philosophies and religions will claim they have the answer. We cannot all be right, but we also cannot all be entirely wrong. Today I want to put forward a moral proposition. I didn't say a religious. I said a moral proposition, which is based upon and inscribed, is inscribed from our divine revelation, our scripture. The writers of the American Constitution and the writers of the Constitution of the Netherlands, they also shared a scriptural sensitivity. But they left it up to every citizen to pursue the moral truth based upon their own perceptions. This is what makes my country, America, a great country, I believe. And after living in the Netherlands for a year, you know, four years ago or three years ago, I lived here. And in the whole of Europe, I've visited now at least 19 of the countries in Europe and, uh, and uh, out a little bit outside of Euro-Asia, Euro they might call it. I've visited all of them. Universities, masjids, Islamic organizations, civic organizations. So I think I know the Netherlands, its temperament, its people. And I can say, and I do say to people, that if there was a country that I would live in outside of America, it would be the Netherlands. We'll talk about why in another second. Because it is the, this is what makes America a great country, their, what, their willingness to have tolerance, openness, to be candid, to be transparent, and to listen to other people, and to put the moral truth in its right places. That's what I believe makes my country unique, and this is what I think makes your country unique, and this is why people from every place in the world are drawn to America, and this is why people all over the world, all over Europe, they're drawn to the Netherlands. You know, people could say, well, they like the downtown area, you know, but the Netherlands too. You know what I'm talking about. It is the principle that toleration and mutual respect will give to every human being the opportunity to secure basic human liberty, yet provide the privilege for everyone to promote their own religious convictions. We have been witnessing this movement throughout the Muslim world to secure these basic freedoms. So I'm being very clear here that the basic freedoms that Muslims are fighting for in their own countries, those freedoms have already been secured in the West. In a free and democratic society, this is how visions are born and how they are cultivated. And we Muslims should be grateful to have this privilege. With that in mind, I want to point out a few things that may complement our role uh, in Europe and in particular in the Netherlands. Uh, in particular. Now, when Mr. Obama ran for the U.S. presidency, it was on the platform of the need for change. That was what his theme was. And in the Quran, Almighty God said, I was a belayer in the Shaitan regime, or, 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 or the Prophet said, I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he said, that Allah, he does not change the condition of the people from, uh, from, from worse to better. He doesn't elevate the people. He doesn't cause the people to become improved until the people improve themselves. This is the principle. When people improve themselves, when people reform themselves, then Almighty God gives them all the tools in their environment to improve their condition. 
Now, because Mr. Obama understood that theme, and he had to, because at the end of the day, Mr. Obama's father was a Muslim from Kenya. I mean, he's a Christian, that's what he said, and I, you know, we gotta go for that. But his father was a Muslim from Kenya. His stepfather was a Muslim from Indonesia. And Mr. Obama, he spent a part of his youth in a madrasa, Islamic school. So, I mean, come on, dude, don't you think he know the Fatiha? <laughs> in any case, Mr. Obama knew that the most important thing for Americans to focus upon was a change in their thinking. So therefore, when Mr. Obama, yeah, by the way, let me stop here for a minute. You know, when Mr. Obama is talking on a stage somewhere, think about this. He has a gold ring on. And if you zoom in on that gold ring, you'll find that the gold ring says, La ilaha illallah. And if you don't think that's true, go to Google, Gaggle, Giggle, and check it out. <laughs> So that means that la ilaha illallah, it has reached the White House. And there's a reason why Mr. Obama never took that ring off. It was given to him as a gift. It's like a memoir. It's something that was given to him that he has a sentiment about. But he didn't take it off because he had it on before he got married. And he kept it on even after he was a president, even though he knew there would be controversy about it. Mr. Obama articulated that the greatest challenges facing our society and the world. And certainly those challenges that he articulated, these are our challenges. Because we are citizens of organized, open, democratic societies. Yet, we have another set of challenges which have been mandated upon us as Muslims through the revelation of the Quran and the unparalleled behavior of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing upon him. And this is because Islam is not simply a religion. And we Muslims, whatever citizenships that we have, we're not just simply citizens of a country. We are citizens of a country. And we should be good and productive citizens of the country where we are. But that is not all that we are. We are human beings who are upon the most profound moral paradigm in the world. It is called Islam. And what Mr. Obama, he spoke about the issues facing America and the issues facing society, they're also our issues. He spoke about the economy. He spoke about health care. He spoke about the environment. He spoke about energy. He spoke about crime and corruption. He spoke about education. He spoke about war war to support and promote what he considers the ultimate good. And when we Muslims talk to non-Muslims and other people in society, we don't need to just be talking about the religion. That's like women in the kitchen just keep talking about recipes. We don't need to keep talking about the recipes, we want to see the food hit the table. That's like farmers who've got thousand acres of land and they just keep talking about what kind of seeds they're going to put down and what they like to see, what kind of harvest they like to have and how beautiful the land and the sky and all that. We don't need to hear all that. We need to put the seeds in the ground and do the work and we need to see a harvest. It's right or wrong? I, I know what I said is right. <laughs> so Muslims, in order for non-Muslims in our societies to understand and appreciate our position, we need to make Islam relevant, our beliefs relevant to the challenges facing humanity and in particular our society. So Muslims need to talk to people about the condition of the economy. Allah said to us in the Quran, O oh, you who believe, consume only the good things that we have provided for you. And if you look at the economy, one of the major things that affect the economy is how people consume things either lawfully or unlawfully, morally or immorally. The Prophet said to us regarding, he said all human beings should look to five things before five things. And one of those five things is your health before your sickness. 
your wealth before your poverty, your free time before you're busy, your life before your death. So you see the Quran and the life of the Prophet, it addressed everything. And we need to take from there and share that with our society. We need to talk about the environment. Because Islam spoke about the environment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that the environment that we live in has its own rights. The water has its own rights. The land has its own rights. The animals have their own rights. The agriculture has its own rights. And we have to give the rights to the world. And, the, and we have to give rights to the earth. And we have to give rights to the air. Because if we don't, we're going to be without that air and we're going to be without that earth. Our prophet, peace and blessing upon him, he said, There are three things that no human beings have the right to control because it should be shared by all human beings. Fire, water, and grass. What does that mean today? Fire means what? Energy. No one, no group of human beings have the right to control the energy of any society because if they do that, then they're going to use it as a tool of oppression or exploitation. No human beings have the right to produce or to manufacture or to set up an industry that pumps foul things into the air and into the water. Because the water and the air is what all human beings live from. And no human beings have a right to alter or to control or manipulate the agriculture like people who are using these, uh, uh, what they call GMAs. You know what that is, right? Genetically modified foods, GMS. It's, it's immoral. And there's a reason why they're doing it, not to give benefit to the human beings, but to control what human beings are consuming. And that's why, by using these genetically modified foods, you find women starting to become active masculine and men growing breasts. I'm not a physicist, but you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see what's in front of you. <laughs> and regarding crime and corruption, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us, ma'ruf munka You see, Muslims are supposed to be the champions of what is good, what is moral, what is clean, what is decent. And our challenge is to integrate these principles of Amrul Ma'ruf and Nahdul Munkar. So the people come to know that we Muslims are just people, and that we Muslims are benevolent people. And that's why in the khutbah of Jum'ah, usually at the end of the khutbah, the Imam is going to say, Inna Allah ya'maru bil adl, wal ihsan, wa ita'idhul qurba, wa yanha min fahshad, wa munkri, wa dhadi. He says that, but the Muslims not thinking because they think that he's ending, he getting me to end the khutbah, he's getting ready to stand up for the prayer, and everybody start getting in motion, you're not thinking about the ayah. Inna Allah ya'maru bil adl. Allah has ordered us upon what? Justice for everyone. Well, ihsan, that means benevolence for everyone. To be truly just, you need some level of power. And to be benevolent, you have to have some level of resourcefulness. And Islam has promoted us to have this kind of resources. Also, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran regarding education and knowledge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, before He created the heavens and the earth, He created the pen. That's what the Prophet told us. In the first five ayahs that came in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And the first five ayahs is dealing with education. So education and knowledge and the promotion of education and knowledge it should be tantamount, should be a priority for all Muslims and we should be competing with everybody in that field. And regarding war, no one in the world can rightfully blame anyone who is defending themselves or defending their family or defending their land. And I just want to bring a point that before any Muslims were ever called terrorists, before any Muslims were ever called terrorists, 
The first time Muslims were called terrorists was in 1948. I don't think I need to say more than that. All you need to do is go back to 1948 and find out what happened in 1948. And from that time onwards, Muslims have been called terrorists. But the ones who committed the first crime in 1948, those are the real terrorists. And I mean the, the, the criminal occupation of Palestine, that's a crime. And there is no statutory limits to that kind of a crime, or the magnitude of that kind of a crime. And here I'm not talking about the Palestinians, I'm talking about taking somebody's land and occupying that land and then dispossessing those people and then saying, now, this is our land. That's a crime. But that crime has been done all over the world. We just focus upon that kind of an issue, but we can make the world a better place because we now have the tools, we have the resources. We, we, we can make the world a better place. We don't always have to be blaming about what happened 60 years ago or 70 years ago when we can change the world like it is from where we are. Brothers and sisters, we Muslims should become familiar with these issues. And we must use our faith and our insight to offer viable solutions and or propositions to the, this society regarding these very serious issues. But if we want to offer propositions, we have to read about these issues. Because if you get the newspaper and you only look to see what you can buy at the coupons, and you look to the newspaper and you only look, you don't seem to see the sports section, or you look to the newspaper and you only look to see the headlines of who committed a crime, you're not really reading what's going on in the society. We have been ordered in the Quran to fear Allah. The greatest order in the Quran that comes over and over and over is to be mindful of God, to be conscious of God. God is warning us about our moral consciousness and behavior. So we have been ordered to fear God, to be mindful of God, to be mindful of His revelation, to obey Almighty God and to be conscious and to enjoin what is right and to forbid what is wrong and to be fair and just in our dealings. We should strive to be both uh, we should strive to both understand and to implement the Qur'an and the authentic sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa within the context and the framework of the constitution where we live in. We should develop the thinking and the commitment to Islamic community, the organized Islamic community. And when I say the organized Islamic community, I mean that all the different influences of the Muslims need to come together into a pact, a bond, a platform. Whether Salafi or Sunni or Shi'i or whatever you want to call it, you have to find a way to build bridges instead of blaming because you will always be polarized and separated. And you're everybody who's separated, Kulul Hizbun, Bimaladehi, Falihun. Every group is waving their own flag, saying who's right and blaming the other person. You're not going to get anywhere like that. We have to make some compromises. Not compromises to the sources. Not compromises in our faith. But compromises with human beings who perceive things different than ourselves. Hmm? We should develop the thinking and the commitment to building an Islamic, organized Islamic community. Creating an organized national leadership. I mean, if the non-Muslims whether they are the Socialist Party, or the Communist Party, or they are the, the, um, they are the Liberal Party, or the Progressive Party, or whatever. They have differences among themselves, but when it comes time to vote, and to establish the institution, and to be accountable, and to discipline themselves, what do they do? They carry out concerted effort. And we have to do the same thing. Why is it that Muslims living in the Netherlands have not formed a national leadership. I don't ask you the questions. We should ask the leaders that question. No leader is any better than another leader. Those leaders need to come together every 60 days or every 180 days or three or four times a year and to come together and discuss the priorities of the Muslims and the priorities of the society. They should be recognized as the national Muslim leadership then you'll see that when that happens, they're going to be able to change and make some contributions on behalf of the Muslims. Also, we have to think about the development of our skills and products and services. 
all the time that Muslims have been living in Europe, why haven't they produced a car? I mean, why haven't they produced a refrigerator? Why haven't they produced a toaster? I mean, we buy everything from China and Singapore, and we got Porsches and we got BMWs, we got Audis and we got this and we got whatever it is. We blaming other people and we riding the cars, we're using their services while we talking about we the best people. It doesn't make sense to me. If we're the best people, we should be producing the best products and offering the best services. Because that's what Islam told us to do. Well, Ahsinu in the Allah. Allah says, and do excellence. Be excellence on every level. Because verily Allah, He loves those who are dedicated towards excellence. We should strongly urge, in fact, we should insist upon our respected leaders to collaborate, to cooperate, and to galvanize the Muslim community in order to address not only their particular issues, but the critical issues of the society itself. We can no longer accept or support religious ritualism and traditions that distance us and isolate us from the mainstream society. We're not isolationists. Allah, He sent the Prophet Muhammad to join with His people. And Allah, He sent us to join with the people, not to separate from the people. We can't change things by separating from the people. We have to be involved, caring, and contributing to the welfare of the greater society. We must engage in open dialogue with people who are the most ignorant, who are the most provocative, who have the most inflamed speech, as our prophet said he did. We have to endure them, we have to tolerate them, and we have to do exactly what I'm saying to Mr. Mr. Uh, Wilders and the people are on his level. We should invite them to public dialogue, not debate. Nothing to debate about. I want to be debating about if that's the sky and this is the earth and we debating about that. No, we want to have an open dialogue upon what somebody perceives to be a threat, or what somebody perceives to be the truth, or what somebody perceives to be false. We need to have an open dialogue so the whole public can see what he had to say and what he had to say or she or whatever the case might be over a period of time because whoever sincere, they can be transparent and they can be open. And that's what Islam said to us. We Muslims should be prepared to be open. Secondly, when we are discussing things with people, don't be reactionary. Don't let people push your buttons and make you look at, at foolish and criminal. No, be patient, be dignified, be disciplined. We have to engage in open dialogue and interfaith discussions. We have to have public forums and projects that would allow the Islamic values to be exemplified. We should remember that we are not simply a faith-based community. No, we are a community with clear mandate to establish our faith in the society. We should feel the overwhelming compulsion to preach and to teach our faith, inviting with clarity, confidence, and wisdom every human being regardless of their social status. And we Muslims, we have the right to give our opinions and our advice, but we do not have a right to go around condemning people, whether Muslims or non-Muslims, saying that we are right and they are wrong. The Prophet did not do that, sallallahu We must believe in the excellence of Islam and its historical capacity to engage, to compete, and to prevail in any environment, at any time, and under any circumstances. And we must develop and sustain the belief and the certainty that the Islamic system is the best system and the best solution and the most profound vision for this society and for the entire world irregardless of place or time or circumstance. We must be prepared to put forward 
this proposition and to point to a very clear, irrefutable evidence for what we are saying. Allah, Almighty God, will hold us accountable for the privileges and the opportunities that we have been given as Muslims living in this society or Muslims living in any other society today. And Almighty God will ask us on the Day of Judgment, what contribution did you make as a sign of your gratitude? When Muslims show their genuine concern and put their hands out to work and contribute, other people in your country, the Netherlands and in Europe, they will recognize. They will see. They will witness. When Muslims build themselves and launch a social reform movement in this country, others will listen and some will respond. And then we can put forward some of the moral principles that inevitably will affect and benefit this society. I truly believe that we Muslims are holding keys to stabilizing this country and this society. But we can only use those keys when and if we can think outside the box. And when and if our particular cultural ethnic experience can be subordinated to Islam and our conduct and we understand and appreciate the values of our country and its constitution and that we understand and appreciate the opportunity and the distinction that we have as citizens of this country and other countries in Europe and the world. Dear Muslims, I don't want anybody here to say the Sheikh sounds like he's, not, he's selling out. What are you talking about about citizenship? Well, I think you need to wake up and smell the coffee. Because I don't see nobody who's here from wherever you're here from. No matter how long you've been here. You might have been here 40 years, all your life. You might have just got here 10 years ago. And you could be still calling yourself whatever you want to call yourself. But guess what? You might go back home to visit, but you're not giving up your passport. You're going back to visit, but you're not going back to stay. Because you appreciate what you have. So let's be honest about it. If you appreciate what you have, you've got to appreciate the society that gave you what you have. When Muslims show their genuine concern and put their hands out to work and contribute, other people in this society will take notice. When Muslims commit themselves to launch a social profile reform movement in this country, others will listen and some will respond. And then we can put forward a moral proposition that may save our country and the world. I truly believe that we Muslims are holding keys to stabilizing this country and the world. But we can only use those keys when and if we can think outside the box and think outside of our particular cultural ethnic experience and understand and appreciate the values of our country and the opportunity and distinction that we have as citizens of the country where we live. No doubt there will be strong criticisms coming from various circles of self-righteous Muslims and their leadership that this sounds like selling out or deviating from the Islamic ideological allegiance. In fact, I would rather apply the terminology buying in. Not selling out, but buying in. Because that's what our Prophet said he did when he arrived in Medina. When the Prophet said made hijrah from Mecca and he moved to Medina, he didn't sell out, he bought in. The very first instruction that he gave was This was the first thing he said before he told the people go knock on the doors and tell the new sheriff is in town. He didn't do that. He said go and spread food with the people. Eat with them and offer your food with them because when people eat together and drink together they establish normal relationships. And give good greetings. Give good greetings to those whom you know, meaning the Muslims, and those who you don't know. 
and show good behavior. That when we take that chart, this new course, that Muslims are not religious isolationists, and Muslims are not extremists, and Muslims are not fanatics, but rather Muslims are engaged in the social and political activity of reforming the society for the goodness of humanity. And I believe that we have to be committed to preserving the constitutional freedoms, whether we want to use the word democratic or not. We don't have to be dialectical or rhetorical about that statement. Generally, what democracy means, an open, free society. And democracy is not the same everywhere. Democracy means something a little bit different in Switzerland than it does in Sweden. Democracy is a little bit different, okay, in Wales than it is in London and in the UK. You know, the, the, the democracy is a little bit different here in your country than it is in Germany. But they're all using the terminology to mean an open, free, and reasonably just society. And if you're living here, nobody's forcing you to stay here. If you don't think this is an open, free society and they're offering you benefits, guess what? Pack your clothes, pack your bags, and leave the passport. I don't see nobody leaving. <laughs> so I have to believe, I believe that we have to be committed to preserving the constitutional freedoms and collaborating with other human beings in our society to defend our country. Because our prophets have told us that whatever country that we're living in, if that country is attacked, we have to defend that country. The Muslims who went to Abyssinia, the first Muhajirin that went to Habash, the king, the ruler of Habash asked him, Jabir ibn Abi Talib, he asked him, if our country is attacked, would you help us defend it? He said, yes. SubhanAllah. And see what happened? The king of that country of Habash, because of the good behavior of the Muslims, after 12 years, he became a Muslim. And before he died, seven of his cabinet ministers became Muslims. Not because they read the Quran, not because of this emotional dialogue and arguing and debating, but from the behavior of the Muslims, that the Muslims were businessmen, and they were agricultural people, because they were contributing to the society, and they were known to be honest and just. It was their behavior. So, we're not expecting the, the president of your country, or the prime minister of your country, or we don't expect them to become Muslims. We don't expect that. But guess what? It could happen. And whoever Muslims say that could never happen, something wrong with your Iman.